Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday Celebration from the Center for Spiritual Living in Huntsville, Alabama. We hope you feel the grace, the beauty, and the love of our community as you hear the message of the week. From the soul of Bach to the mindfulness bell to the deep silence within. We hear Rumi in our heart who says, there is a voice that is inaudible to the soul. Listen to it. And so when the soul of Bach is played, the invitation is to open our own soul. You might say, as Emerson would be, the oversoul, in which we all meet in that field, that space of the creative power of the universe, the via creativa. There are many pathways to source The Via Creativa is one. As a dancer, I discovered something moving through me at a young age that still moves through me. And so could we show up for the present moment and then get out of the way, get our bloated nothingness out of the way, as Emerson would say. And when we do so, we connect with the divine circuits. And so in this month of January, we are exploring a new design for living. One that is established in source, in the vastness of who we are. And then we discover how this divine essence self would reveal itself at this sacred moment in time through its creation and we are that it is the wave waking up to the ocean it is the earthling waking up to the cosmos as one quantum physicist said we are Gaians we are civil we are civilians of the universe and this sunday i'm going to be exploring the idea of trusting in our living universe universe meaning one song it is alive within all creation and to know ourselves in a holographic universe as a cell in the body of god as a light from the one light, revealing itself in the sacred moment of now, 
We are light beings. Even the Bible points to it in the very first words of Genesis, in the beginning God. In the beginning there was this infinite presence, Brahman. And it says darkness was on the face of the earth. So darkness is the face of God. And then Brahman said, let there be light. And the light that they spoke of was the Shekinah, the light within. And so the invitation is to know ourselves as that luminous presence that isn't separate from every other luminous being. It's all the one life, as Ernest Holmes would say, God's life. He said that life is perfect and that life is my life now. So could we be humble enough to receive realization? This is who we are. As Meister Eckhart realized, the only begotten is ever begetting itself in me right now. Not as a historical fact that happened 2000 years ago, but no, the universal Christ is waking up within all creation. And as we ponder that, trust that and allow for that emergence, well, then we get to reap the consequences of this expanded realization. It says also in the Bible, this is the moment the Lord has made rejoice and be glad in it. So what if all we ever have is the sacred moment and our challenge is to be grateful, to be glad in it, no matter what life brings us. And then sometimes life gives us death. Sometimes life gives us transformation. Some life, sometimes life gives us chaos. And could we know right there inherent in the chaos, there is a divine order waiting to be experienced. Mm. I believe everything happens through grace. I discovered this Sunday morning that the fact that I'm sitting here in front of you uh, is because one kick-ass doctor knew how to put a stint into my left, whatever that is, where the Widowmaker happened and had divine order, not had the amazing doctor, Joshua Krasnow, working that day when I went in with my lucky socks on, I wouldn't be sitting before you. So I am a believer and someone who trusts that divine love will bring together and maintain together those who belong together. And so we are sitting in this circle of love today because divine love has ordained it to be so. And when you're ready to explore this with a playful innocence of a child, I invite you to be here now. And let's explore the idea of trust. You know, it's so funny when I prepare a theme for a month in advance, that theme begins to work on me from within. And that's how it always works. And so this month I've been exploring a new design for living. Could we, and this was the last book that Ernest Holmes wrote, but he wrote it in 1960, the year he passed. Now that's uh, how many years ago? That's 40 plus 20, it's 63 years ago. What if his wonderful exploration at the end of his long career was to say, I want a new design for living, not one that's based on who I have been in the past, but one that shows the potential and the possibility of an expanded realization of what is possible. This morning I came to the center and someone had sent me a video from this woman who has a PhD in quantum uh, 
mechanics and she's from Oxford and she's a relatively old woman and she says, you know, science has proven that we are all one, that we're inseparable and that we're all a part of the one life. And she says, we are Gaians on the planet. And then she said, you know, they say that we started from the Big Bang 8.5 billion years ago. She said, oh, no, 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 it wasn't the Big Bang. She says, science has proven that it was like the breath of Brahman giving breath to the universe in a much more benign way 13.5 billion years ago. And then she says, and throughout time, we have been evolving as a species into this new order of being where we recognize that we are universal beings. She says, we are Gaians, that we are part of the one life and that this is one big evolutionary process and you see it mirrored in nature. And she says, what we are is we're metamorphosizing. And she says, the meta and the morphing has to happen within us. And then she says, look at the little caterpillar. This is a very old woman. She's saying, in studying the caterpillar and how it will eat and eat and eat and eat until that phase of its life is over. And then it has to become liquid and dissolve into a cocoon where it has to have the strength to emerge from that cocoon. And the imaginal cells that are inherent within the caterpillar are also the imaginal cells that are within each one of us. And we get to recreate or evolve into a higher order of being human, the universal human, or we could say the universal Christ. And so what if everything is pointing to a participatory universe where each of us get to trust in this strange emergence that's always happening, that never stops? We're one life and we get to know ourselves as that one life. Well, then everything becomes your brother and your sister and part of you. It's part of the whole. And could we trust in this unfoldment, even when it's uncomfortable, even when we have to go to a, through a death and a rebirth? And all of life is a death and a rebirth. There's a crucifixion and a resurrection happening at all times. We die to the old sense of self. And so she says, my greatest model in, in this, and she wrote a book called The Story of Gaia. This, this uh, physicist with a PhD in quantum mechanics. And she says, my hero was my sweet little mother. She says, I'm five feet two, but my mother was under five feet tall. And she says, she taught me one simple premise in life. She says, you show up for the moment and you get out of the way. And what my little mother was saying was, you show up for the moment and sometimes life gives you really crazy moments and you get out of the way, you get your ego out of the way and you deal with what is. You meet the moment with as much compassion and as clarity and as proactivity. Instead of reacting, you say, I can respond to this moment. Sylvie was close to a tornado. And she went to her safe place with her cat on her arms and she met that moment and she's here to smell the lilies today because she used common sense and a, a peace that was just waiting for her to trust in the grace of life to see her through that experience. So when I was a brand new minister 34 years ago and I'm teaching science of mind classes and you know you don't teach a class, you experience it. You experience the truth. It's like oneness can't be a concept, it has to be a direct experience. And so as I'm preparing classes, there's one sentence in the Science of Mind text that shook me. And that sentence was, he who does not trust does not know God. And at that particular moment, my trust level wasn't up here. You know, I still have a lack of trust in our country at this time, how it's becoming so crazy as to what's happening in America. Is democracy safe? Um, are the rights of human beings safe on planet Earth? Uh, the whole racial 
I was watching Harry and Meghan and his whole metamorphosis out of being a royal into just being a regular human being and the courage it takes to tell his truth to a world that wants you to conform to a system that's been there for a very long time. And he said, if I were to stay in that system, it would kill me. I can see that his mother lives within him and he's daring to speak the truth to a system that doesn't want you to speak the truth to it. Bob was sharing with me as he was playing the Bach this morning, there was a time in our ancient history in the church, if you played the wrong chords or from the wrong whatever, you were beaten and potentially killed because you were playing the devil's music. And I said, you can't be serious. And he says, and Bach said, this is fakata. He says, there isn't the devil's music and there isn't God's music. And so beware when the universe unleashes an original thinker. Thank you, Johannes Sebastian Bach. Is that his full name? Yes. For, for saying that, to speak the truth to ignorance. Now, my hero, of course, is Emerson, who did the very same thing. Boy, when he went to Harvard and did the Harvard Divinity School address in 1845, and he said, let go of your God of the intellect and your God of tradition and let your soul be set on fire with the same fire that ignited all those that you quote and that you reference. So Jesus was on fire with a message that got him killed in the, in the end because he was preaching a message of love, not of conformity, not that the system is sacrosanct. No, he said, question the system. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father, that all there is is the one. So he was teaching oneness. And so Emerson woke up, strangely, as a minister in the first church in Boston, and he says, the religion is too mm, lacking for me to stay with. And his last sermon was called The Last Supper. And he talked about how the whole Christian premise is built on a lie that they made the earth in six days and on the seventh day the Lord rested and that Eve led Adam astray and we were born in sin from the sin of woman with man and that we had to have the blood of Jesus to heal us. And he said it was all predicated on a lie. He woke up and then he went on to write a beautiful essay called Self-Reliance and I pulled out my trusty book where I don't underline much. It's all pink in here. So let me extract just a titch of Emerson. He says, we but half express ourselves we but half express ourselves and are ashamed of that divine idea which each of us represents. We misrepresent ourselves. He says, we sell ourselves for rags and riches. He said, if you knew who you were, you'd fall to your knees. When Bob comes in here and plays Bach, I feel the soul of Bach moving through his fingers. So what if Emerson is inviting us into a soulful realization that we've got to stop selling ourselves short in the universe? Self-reliance. Every ninth grader reads this. We but half express ourselves and are ashamed of that divine idea which each of us represents. It may be safely trusted. Whoa, Miss Rabel, he's saying you can trust the divine idea that the universe has of you. It can be trusted. Imagine telling your kids you're made out of divine stuff. When I met Jack, when he was nine years old, I said, this is a gift from God. He's not a crazy kid who sees things. No, he was tapping into the universe. So could we know that it's the divinity coming through? The lady that uh, is this ancient woman in England, she says, as a little girl of five, she says, I was having experiences with other dimensions of reality like Jack was. And she says, now as an old woman, she says, I am so grateful that as a young girl, I was getting glimpses and my mother never discouraged it. And so my mother taught me to trust the intuitive voices that come from within. So could that trust be in something that's inherent within you and we could learn to trust the voice. Emerson's saying this as well. It may be safely trusted as proportionate and of good issue 
so that it be faithfully imparted. This something is imparted to us, through us. But God will not have his work made manifest by cowards. It took courage for Bach to stand up at his time and nearly experience his own extermination. It took courage for Emerson to speak the truth at a time when everybody was institutionalized in their religion. God will not have himself make manifest by cowards. Jean Houston was interviewing this woman from London and she says, where did you get the courage to speak your truth to a system of scientists where you are saying that we're all connected in a vibrational field of divine love? And she said, that little girl in me had the courage and I got it from my mom who said, show up for the moment, get out of your way and speak your truth. It takes courage to speak truth. This is what Emerson's saying. It needs a divine individual to exhibit anything divine. Whoa, I think we should say that together, Sylvia. It needs a divine individual to express anything divine. So what is he saying to be self-reliant? To rely on the self, to the divine within you, to lead the way and show you how to be the very thing that we have separated ourselves from. It's not separate from you. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Brahman, you've seen the Father. And he says, what I do, you too shall do and greater. He was not trying to separate us. He was bringing us in to the pack of the one. There's only one pack here. So he goes on to say this. This is Emerson. Two words, one sentence. Trust thyself. Well, let's say that together. Trust thyself. It says every heart vibrates to that iron string. To thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night, the day. Thou canst not be false to anyone when you begin to trust the self that is guiding and showing us the way. And then he says, accept the place that the divine providence has found for you. Wherever place you find yourself in this lifetime is the place that the soul has chosen for you so that you can meet the adversity, the challenges, and the gifts of life, whatever those challenges are. We all have challenges. So accept the place the divine providence has found for you, the society of your contemporaries, and the connection of events. Great men have always done so and confided themselves childlike to the genius of their age. To confide yourself in a childlike way to the genius of your age. Last Sunday when I went home from the center, I turned on Turner Classic Movies and there was Abe Lincoln in Illinois in 1940. And it showed a young Abe Lincoln standing up to a time in America when slavery was the way of the land. And they had the Dred Scott decision and his wife was from Kentucky and she had a family that had slaves and the Dred Scott decision in the Supreme Court, which was a kind of a corrupt court at the time, it was dominated by political interests, they, in this Dred Scott decision, said that property rights are greater than human rights. In other words, it's better to have slaves that are your property than to have human rights, where it says all men are created equal, endowed by their creator. And so Lincoln said, principle is not bound by precedent. And there is a principle of equality that's here, which is greater than a principle of ownership. So he dared to speak the truth at a time in America, and it led us into a civil war. And then you had the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And you can see in 1860, we were in tenuous times back then and we're in tenuous times now. So he says, beware when the universe unleashes an original thinker. And who do you think was right behind Lincoln was Mr. Ralph Waldo Emerson. And when he was shot, 
1865, Lincoln gave his memorial address at his funeral. And it's so beautiful because you can hear it online. I, I haven't seen it in print. And he said that Lincoln was representative of an aboriginal human on this planet. He lived in a log cabin. He was your true American, and he believed in equal rights for all. The other thing that he had the chutzpah to stand up for, for women's rights. He says women should be considered equal for men. They should be allowed to own property, and we should listen to them because they have something to say. And he said, if you give women rights, you're not going to deny men's rights. So here was someone who was an evolutionary throw forward who dared to speak his truth. Great men have always done so. And they've confided themselves childlike to the genius of their age, betraying their perception that the eternal was stirring at their heart, was working through their hands, and was predominating in all their being. In other words, the divine was working through him to express a truth that may have pissed off the world outside, but he couldn't not speak the truth. And he says, and we are now men and women, and we must accept the highest mind that the same transcendental transcendental destiny and not pinched in the corner, not cowards fleeing before a revolution, but redeemers and benefactors. He was kind of verbose and his sentences go on for three paragraphs, but that's okay. Not cowards fleeting from a revolution, but redeemers and benefactors, pious aspirants to be noble clay under the almighty. He's telling you, Nikki, to be noble clay under the almighty effort let us advance on chaos and the dark and bring the light that's so needed. Well, he was telling us to stand up to the darkness, Miss Reva, and letting your light shine in 1835. Boy, thank you. Now, are we willing to honor that request to trust in this universal self to find an inlet and an outlet through its expression? Beware when the universe unleashes an original thinker. The world won't have itself made manifest by cowards, so it takes courage to speak the truth. I remember when Charlie Johnson was here and he was a refugee from the Baptist church. And once he woke up to the truth of his being, he kept speaking it loud and clear. And I think he alienated all his friends and family in Eufaula, Alabama, wherever he was from, because something woke up in him. Now, what if we get to wake up to this truth? It was um, Jack Cornfield in this wonderful book, which I'm using as an inspiration for this month, No Time Like the Present. He talks on the Buddhist path, how there is a wise trust that wakes up within us when it's ready. And oftentimes it wakes up after that second marriage falls apart. Sometimes it wakes up when the religion that you thought was gonna sustain you as Emerson did, wasn't strong enough to sustain him when his young wife died. He said, I needed a spirituality that says there is no death. So what if this wise trust comes from those moments that seem uncomfortable? You know, when, um, when I was uh, a young man trying to follow the path of my soul and um, listening deeply to the, to the voice, and I saw a musical called A Chorus Line, and we were in San Francisco, Trey and myself, we were floundering, we were in our 20s, and, and Donna McKechnie's up there on the stage, way down there, and she sings, God, I'm a dancer, and a dancer dances. And all of a sudden, I remembered a moment on the dance floor when this voice awoke within me, and uh, I went back to get my master's in dance. And as I went back, thinking that that was the path of my life, in the master's program, I discovered something underneath it, which was this creative process emerging. 
And then I did my master's thesis on the anatomy of inspiration, and it was taking me into that place that Bach had found. It was taking me into that wise trust that there was something greater than dance. Dance was pointing the way to the via creativa, to this something that was the divinity within me. And what if all of life is a dance? And it was saying, you're meant for a greater dance. So Jack Cornfield's pointing to that something, this wise trust that emerges, and he quotes Rumi who also awoke within me and Rumi. And we have the beautiful sign out here under the rainbow heart that's sitting on that table. This is the quote from Rumi. He says, come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of life. And though you have, and though you have broken your vow a hundred times, ours is, not, ours is not a caravan of despair. Although you may have tried a hundred different spiritual paths, Ours is not a path of despair. Ours is a path of trust. So come, come, whoever you are, from whatever fallen spiritual path that you might have found inadequate for your unfoldment, because we are a path of trust, not of despair. So launching from Rumi's realization, Jack Cornfield says, Rumi reminds us that we can carry on, not in despair, when a relationship falls apart, when you lose your job, a new job will open up. When your animal dies or your sister dies and you realize that they didn't die, they're still here with you. When I hear Harry speak about his mother, Diana, he says, she's my guardian angel. She's always with me. And you know, part of me with a tearful eye says, I know she is just like my twin is with me. So he says, trust begins in the innocence of a child who's ready to step into the arms of even the most unfit parent. You know, when your twin dies, you have these memories of your childhood and they send photographs of mom and dad and my twin and I in the stroller and my older brother. And I see my parents as not mm, given the skill set to raise the children when they were very young. My mother was exceedingly beautiful. My father was a little bit of a hellion and a wild man. And I remember they drank too much, partied too much, and he fooled around too much. And yet they were the parents we had. So when he says, uh, it starts this trust when the innocent child steps into the arms of even the most unfit parents. One of the memories that floods me when my parents would have an argument, my dad would scoop me up because I was the runt of the litter and he'd put me in the car and he'd drive off angrily with his cigarettes and his six pack of beer and I'm five years old and I'm sitting at the drive-in and I'm crying because I was in the middle of the fight and um, so then he got angry at me and drove home and I ran into my arms of my mother and this is the parents we had. She'd go off to work, she was a nurse and he was in the military and we were supposed to sit at the table and not speak, just eat our food. And if you don't eat your food, you get sent to bed and my brother couldn't eat. My father always made mushroom soup and my, father th my brother thought it was like eating snot. And so my brother wouldn't eat, my father would spank my brother and that was my childhood. So it's like the child ready to step into the arms of even the most unfit parent. Then comes life's disillusionments. Anybody have a disillusionment? Oh, there's my beloved Phyllis, so great to see you. Yeah, how many relationships we've disillusioned? Anybody had a few of them out there? Yeah, I've had certainly. So he says, then comes life's disillusionments and the measure of suffering that it brings. This is not a mistake. This is really grace. So loss and betrayal then are woven into the fabric of life. Could we trust in a universe that gives us betrayal? I wonder, what do you think, Michael? He's saying, I think we should. 
This is not a mistake. Loss and betrayal are woven into the fabric of life, the inevitable limits of our human incarnation. So the human in us is going to have projections onto other people. We're going to have expectations. And uh, if those expectations aren't met, whether it's of us or of them, then there is a mm, incompatibility incompat and we leave and then we project our expectations onto yet another one until we stop that nonsense. So outer losses turn us back to seek what is truly trustworthy. I'm going to say that again. Outer losses turn us back to seek what is truly trustworthy. Phyllis has been my most trusted friend for 30 years, and we've been through so many different thises and thats and that. I married you to that sweet guy from New York right here at the center. And then we trusted when that went, wherever that went, and you know, and it was grace at the time it happened. I remember we were so joyful. Yeah, so our losses turn us back to seek what is truly trustworthy, and from disillusion can grow compassion and a bigger perspective. And then you thank them for being in your life for however long it is. And you can forgive 70 times seven. There's no resentment. And we thank you, Ricky, for being who you are. And then we set ourselves free from any idea that it should have been anything the way it was. From disillusion grows compassion and a bigger perspective. And with these, then trust arises again and it's deeper and it's wiser. Endlessly trust that life has given you everything you needed, not necessarily what you wanted. And maybe we needed to be through a few dysfunctional relationships instead of projecting that the person needed to be the source of my good. No, I needed to find that within myself. And so when my first relationship ended and I was devastated and heartbroken, crying all my way to Europe, thinking, who am I, where am I going? I went to nowhere, I went to now here, and I found who I was. And I finally found that lonely little boy who was projecting out onto somebody else that they were the source of my good until I didn't anymore. And so what if that disillusionment is the greatest gift into bringing us trust into something higher, something that's always there? My sweet husband goes and researches everything. He's got Asperger's, he's ADHD. I mean, all the, all the lovely qualities that uh, so many people find repugnant, I find really endearing. And last night he founded an inspiring movie that he says will really inspire your sermon tomorrow. And I said, okay, it's on Netflix. And the movie was called Dog Gone. And it's based on a true story. It's an hour and 15 minutes. It's about a young boy graduating from college. I could relate to him because all of his college graduates got jobs right out of college. I mean, they were going here and there in graduate school. He graduated, didn't have a job, and he went to the pound and he got a dog. And the dog that he got went up to the, to the cage and went, and he saw in that dog, he said, I love you. And the dog basically, I love you too. So when the parents came to the graduation and he wasn't there for the graduation because he overslept, he went for a walk with his dog. So they went to the graduation, he wasn't there. And they projected onto him, you're, you're a disappointment yet again. You hear all your classmates have jobs and you come home with a dog and you can't even take care of yourself. How are you gonna take care of your dog? And so in that shame-based consciousness, based on a true story, he and the dog go home to live with the parents. And of course the dog is ill-behaved and he jumps on the mother and the mother tells him it's, it's the worst thing. He goes for a walk and the dog knows he's not wanted and the dog takes off. Well, they found out that the dog has some kind of strange disease. He has to have a shot every month. Um, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, Phyllis would know it's some rare disease. That, and so they start a search for the dog and it brings the father and the son and the mother together. 
and um, the boy gets so sick because he's empathizing with the dog that's lost. And the dog reminded me he looks just like my dog, Bert, and he was just like baby Speck and that he was terrified of thunderstorms. So here's the dog lost in the middle of the Appalachian Trail. He's hiding under rocks. The thunder and lightning are going. The boy gets a, um, a, a, in, lacerated, hernia, something. He was bleeding from within. So when they finally find the dog, miraculously alive, then the boy falls over, he's nearly, and you see how in all that adversity, the family came together in a way that was truly miraculous. When the boy said, Dad, you've never really validated me or seen me for who I am, and the father, carrying his son in his arms, he said, you have more courage to, to pursue the love of a dog. And so the father had his transformational moment, and the kid did as well. And um, and it was such a, a movement in trusting the universe brought that dog in their life to open their hearts and to heal the family at a level that only a Netflix could show you. Trey and I are sitting there sobbing, and it has a happy ending um, at the end. So this is what Jeff Foster says to that kind of thing. I got to get my readers out for this because this is juicy. Jeff Foster said, when you say trusting in the universe, he said that is where the deepest acceptance to accept the life that you've been given, to accept sometimes the chaos and the contractions and the disillusionments, the betrayals, whatever life, when you have that deepest acceptance you're trusting, the dog is lost. And the father said to the boy, he says, he's gonna be okay, son, he's gonna be okay. The boy says, how can you say that, dad? How can you say that? Because I believe it in my heart, son, and I trust in life to bring him back. So the boy didn't have the trust, but he could trust his dad's belief. So this is what the deepest acceptance is all about. He says, to accept thoughts and feelings is to simply and gently effortlessly notice that in this moment, those thoughts and feelings are already accepted. There's the thought of fear. There's a thought of anxiety. What if he's out there and he's not going to... Let the thoughts be accepted that they have already been allowed in. So they're already here. And accepting them is not a time-bound achievement, but a never-ending present moment reality. You cannot accept for what you are in acceptance itself. In other words, you cannot accept what is, rather your acceptance itself. This is the life that you've been given, Michael. Can you accept it in all of its quirkiness? So he says, you are acceptance itself. You're not really a separate person. The whole idea of illusion is that you and I are separate. We're not. We're, we're the acceptance of the universe and the life that we've been given. So, he says, you cannot accept because you are acceptance itself and you are not really a separate person. You are an effortless yes to the moment that you've been given. You are an effortless yes to the moment that you've been given. So could we say yes to this life that we've been given and trust it? You know, there's, there's such a radical shift there because when you don't accept something as it is, well, then you're in resistance to it. And, and they say in, in Buddhism, all suffering, and this is a really simple phrase, all suffering is simply a resistance to what is. So when you stop resisting it, you're not going to suffer anymore. Whoa, isn't that sweet? You know, I have that uh, stress test on Thursday and, and I was in resistance to it until Nikki just said, oh, it's just walking on a treadmill. And so 
you know, I, I was having sympathy pains for Susan because she has knee issues and my knees were acting up and I'm thinking, will my knees be able to do the stress test? And I think, of course they will. You know, but I'd see there's something in you that says, oh no, that's too much stress. And then with my twin sister passing away, I thought, well, there's the stress of that too. By, by opening to the stress of that, just like with Harry opening to the stress of his family thing. And that's why I resonate with him. He says, because when he says, when my mother died, he said, we were told, it, I was 11 years old, we were told that we couldn't grieve. And so he says, I tried to get myself to grieve, but I didn't know how to grieve because I built a wall. And so he says, it's taking me 30 years to climb that wall where I can barely experience the grief that I was told was not acceptable as a child. And so he says, part of my healing is to speak the truth to what really happened and not to live behind the mask of what the world thought was appropriate. So he's finding his healing. And he was on the cover of um, this magazine that Trey gets at Million Magazines. And, um, and he's telling his story. And it's so beautiful to read his story because it's like, it gives me permission then to tell my own dysfunctional story. Like I would never have planned to tell you about my father taking me to the drive-in theater and all the drama that went on with my mom and dad. It was not a pleasant, and you know, as a little boy, I wanted them to get divorced because it was like living in hell. But this was a time in the 50s, you didn't get divorced. And so they stayed together to the bitter end. And you know what I saw in the grace of that is that as they evolved and got older, the love got deeper. It wasn't that passionate, hot love from these two beautiful men, man and woman in their 20s, but it was a mature love, a nurturing love that they had evolved to over time. And so it gave me a perspective that's totally different. One of my favorite New Thought teachers who inspires me is a man named Matt Kahn. And Matt Kahn has his own version of spirituality. And his, his premise is that life is a holding space. And what we are in a strange sense is a holding space. So, and what we do in our revealing services and what we do hit the center is to create a holding space or the context in which the individual parts can experience themselves as connected to the whole. So it's not like David does anything to any of you, but David, if he's doing his work properly, he creates in himself a space in which we can all find refuge. When my baby Speck ran off into the middle of the night, one of the reasons I love this movie was because it blends my life with Trey. When we got baby Speck and Bert, we went up to the Madi Sano and two beautiful pups and they saw a deer and they took off. And the next thing you know, they're gone. And I called Jody and I said, it's getting dark, Jody, what should we do? And she said, don't leave. And so it's getting dark on the mountains and we're sitting there and we're sitting there and finally baby Speck, she comes from the dark forest and she comes and she sits by the car. And so there's one dog. And now we're saying, bird, bird. And it's getting dark and Jody says, don't leave, don't leave. After a few minutes, up waddles from the dark forest, old Bert. Now then Trey would go Cape Cod and he had the summer house on Cape Cod. So he'd take Bert and Speck and we had coyotes out there. One night, baby Speck went out to go pee and she disappeared. And it's thunder and lightning and she was terrified of thunder and lightning. And of course, I thought she was abducted by aliens. Yet again, another dog is missing. And so we got up at the crack of dawn and as soon as it was light, we went out looking for baby Speck. And I'm showing everybody this, oh no, I haven't seen her, no, I haven't seen her. Just like the father and son were doing on the Appalachian Trail. And finally I met this Irish woman. She says, oh yes, I saw this dog under the bushes, huddling in the mud, shaking like a leaf. 
And we drove to that little remote place and there she was in the mud, shaking like a leaf. Yet again, we had found the dog. And terrified, I think she'd escaped the coyotes, she came running from the mud and jumped in the back of the car and she wouldn't leave the back of the car. So we get home to the cave house, Bert jumps out, goes in the house, and she wouldn't leave the car, shaking like a leaf, still covered in mud. And I called Jody, and Jody said in her wisdom, she says, you've all been through a really traumatic night. And she says, now what you need to do is you need to be the space for her to feel safe so that she can come out of this post-traumatic stress. And you know, Harry of Harry and Megan said the same thing. What he went through in Iraq was PTSD. And in his working through his own PTSD, and we all have that, we find the healing. And so yet again, uh, they were teaching us how to create the space. And so I want to give you Matt Kahn's fine, final little um, definition of what we do when we create space as an invitation for all of us to trust the universe, because he shows you the consequence of creating the space for ourselves and for our family and how that expands out into a new design for living. So he says, he says, may holding space as what we did for baby Speck be an inner declaration and an ongoing prayer that your being with you in direct response to the details and the demands of an ever-changing world. We live in an ever-changing world where there's stress and there's chaos, there's confusion, there's uncertainty. Could we be that holding space in this ever-changing world? And then he says, since holding space is a gift of empowerment, you can openly share. I invite the capacity of your greatest effort and the majestic wonder of your innate courage to begin leading the way on your behalf. Could we, and Phyllis was always that space for me when I was contracted. Gigi's been that space for me when I was contracted. Raven, so many of you have been that space. Terry Hartman, the morning I found out that my sister died, she walked in that door and I fell into her arms and she just held my shaking heart. So could we be that space for each other, he's saying. And he say, may it bring you the living adventure that you've been seeking. Well, isn't that sweet? You're embarking on a living adventure by holding space. May it answer the questions that are lingering in your mind. Isn't that a beautiful thing to invite? If there are any questions, can this deep awareness that you're learning to trust, this space, provide you with the answers? Not a compartmentalized answer, but a soulful answer. He says, may it show you the way across the threshold of despair and into a paradise of compassionate resolve. Instead of living from despair, as Rumi said, we have a compassionate resolve to be the voice of love and acceptance. Huh? and the yes of life to whatever life brings us. May it absolve you of your woundedness. May it make peace with your past and set into motion a voyage home into the infinite depths of your own divine heart space. You're going home to the enlightened heart. And you know, that's what enlightenment is, is to live from this open, awakened heart where everything is a part of you. Everything is, is your own self. Yeah, and from this moment forward, this is his a blessing to us. From this moment forward, may the destiny of your awakened heart shine freely from the benefit of all who enter your immaculate presence through the transformative power of holding space, abiding in trust, 
we open to a new design for living from the vastness sourced in divine light and love. So we go to that place. Jan, would you like to ring the bell and we'll do a closing? Thank you. The bell invites us into that holding space of love, of acceptance, knowing that you're not the one accepting, that you are acceptance itself. And in that radical acceptance, we hear Emerson saying, trust thyself, that each one beats to that iron bell ring that in oneself lies the whole world. And if you know how to look and to learn the door is there then, and the key is in your hand, but no one gives you this key or the door to open except yourself. So trust the self, the divine self that is awakening within humanity. We are all Gaians. We are all part of this awakening universe and we get to trust in it. My teacher, Kennedy Schultz used to say, don't put yourself in debt to the world, but put yourself in debt to the universe. The universe owes you the awareness of the universal mind, not the local mind. And so courageously we show up for the moment and we get out of our own way. And as we do so, as Emerson would say, we connect with the divine circuits. And then we say yes, a thousand times yes. And we live in the yes. Even when the disillusionments happen, we say yes. I can let that disillusionment go and choose a greater truth that wants to emerge from the wellspring within that is waking up to our oneness and we trust in that. In my wedding ceremonies, Ernest Holmes says a phrase that has been the truth, the iron thread that runs through my life when he said, divine love brings together and maintains together those who belong together. And so what he's saying is, could I trust in divine love? Divine love put my twin and I together in my mother's womb so that we could do that journey Divine love uh, assisted my sister in stepping out of her physical form and now she's with my own mother and they're smiling from within my own heart. Divine love brought Dr. Krasnow into my life when I needed a stint. Divine love brought Nikki into my life uh, when a little boy Jack needed someone to see his divinity. Divine love brought you all here together so that we could sit in this space and experience our oneness. I guess divine love's been in charge the whole time, hasn't it, Raul? Divine love brought a crazy little man to my Wednesday night meditation so that he could meet the love of his life sitting next to him. Divine love brings our pets to us so that they can heal us. And so we smile to divine love. We surrender to divine love. Uh, and we rest in the comfort and the nurturing presence if you only knew how much you are loved. So we're held in the arms of grace, forever safe in the arms of love. And we trust in that holding space. Feeling that inner contentment, that sense of belonging, that sense of harmony and safety that burgeoning courage to be who you are. Remember the universe will not have itself made manifest by cowards. It requires courage. And courage comes from the French word cour, which means heart. 
And so it requires a compassionate heart to lead the way because the heart knows oneness, whereas the head might want to get caught up in judgment and duplicity, the heart only sees one life and we're all connected in that one life. Our soul is metamorphosizing into this universal human, into the universal Christ. And we're doing this together as the one life, universe, one song, singing itself endlessly anew through all the many voices of the one. And we are the one and we are the many voices. So we smile to this calling of the soul to be. Emerson says, be and not seen. He says, let us acquiesce, surrender, trust. As we get our bloated nothingness out of the way, he says, we connect with the divine circuits. And so we're connecting here with every breath. We are the Brahman, we are the Atman. We are the one that knows no other. We are the source, we are the journey, and we are the goal. And uh, it's all divine. Well, I think there's only one here. Yeah, Bert, there's only one here. And you're with me, smiling in my heart. And so let's join in the heart salutation on Martin Luther King's birthday, which is today by saying to this beautiful, courageous soul, I honor you, I respect you, I love you. You are the awakened presence of the one, emerging as life and love from the compassionate heart that knows that we are one. Gaians, Universal humans, the awakened Christ, the light, the love, uh, and we have arrived, we are home, and there's only one here, and you're it, and so it is, so open your eyes. Put on your playful child, because that's the only way you're going to experience the mystery in all its grandeur. Take communion with a flower, and, uh, and you love one another, because love is really precious. And if you have someone that you haven't seen in a while, call them and tell them you, you love them. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.cslhuntsville.org.